Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And one of our former Gamble On guests, probably our most famous guest, Pete Rose, was in the news this past weekend. He was part of the Phillies celebration of their 1980 championship team, and he joined the broadcast booth briefly, but not briefly enough, as he managed to talk crudely about John Crook's missing testicle, mm. refer to a, quote, cock-high fastball, and drop two S-bombs on live TV. And none of that was half as uncomfortable as a reporter asking him about statutory rape allegations and him pleading the fifth and calling the female reporter babe. John, yeah. is it time for a moratorium on us bragging about having had Pete Rose on our podcast? I would say no, but only because he's the most famous athlete of all time who was most associated with gambling. So mm. it was a great cat. I mean, I can't believe someone who listens to a gambling podcast and say they don't care what Pete Rose has to say about, you know, gambling. <laughs> right. So, now, I can't believe someone saying, OK, I do care, but still not going to listen to it for a multitude of reasons, some of which you elaborated on. Uh, and that's fine, too. We don't keep score around here, I don't think. Right. And finally, you can't play the Phillies. I mean, that 42nd anniversary, that's sort of a <laughs> sentimental thing. I know with, I'm not sure what they give out, you know, for, for wedding couples, uh, married couples once they hit that big 42. But uh, it's definitely a big thing. I mean, I hope we're not throwing Jackie Robinson to this, for God's <laughs> sakes. But uh, what were the Phillies thinking anyway? That's funny. I, I was wondering if you were going to mention the non-traditional anniversary of it. <laughs> yes. And then I did start thinking about Jackie Robinson myself. Yeah. So I don't know. But, you know, when we had Pete on, we definitely got him on his best behavior. You know, oh, he, yeah. he, he was good with us. Didn't say anything too terribly off color that I can recall. Um, mm. He had recently started being comfortable talking somewhat openly about gambling. So mm. uh, it, it's a fine interview. And regardless of how lousy a person he may be, I was a kid who first started watching baseball in the early 80s and rooting for the Phillies. So Pete Rose was a living legend when I was first introduced to the game. So it was just cool to talk to him as a baseball fan. So no regrets about us having him on the pod. But wow, that was tough to watch on Sunday. I was <laughs> cringing with every word that came out of his mouth. I The intersection of being a known a-hole and being 81 years old now and just not giving a damn anymore what anyone thinks of you. These are dangerous years to put a microphone in front of Pete Rose. So, you know, we had him on. I'm glad we did, but uh, I'll vote for it to be a one and done at least. Uh, yeah, he, he may vote the same way, actually. <laughs> That's true. Good point. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 204 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 203 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And if you do want to listen to that Pete Rose episode, download it now before someone high up at our company tells us we need to scrub it from the archives. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, a, just in case. Just in yeah, case. Oh, just in case. All right, that sounds good. Um, yeah, coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Betmaker's Head of International Operations, Dallas Baker, who is at the heart of the movement bringing fixed odds horse racing betting to America. We'll ask Dallas about what the upside is of using fixed odds, where it expects it to be in use in the near future in the country, and more. But first, I'm off, so I have no idea if this has been a busy week in the world of gambling. <laughs> so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Before we get into our first news story, an important note that Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has signed the sports betting legislation there. That happened on Wednesday. That bill has officially passed. We discussed it at length last week, so nothing further to say there. So on to our top story this week. And it's rare that an Iowa revenue report would lead our news section, but this was an unusual month in Iowa. The state released its July report on August 4th, and our revenue guru, Chris Altruda, thought there was a typo as two smaller mobile sportsbooks, Unibet and Betfred, showed near impossible hold percentages and revenue figures. Betfred had a 65% hold, Unibet a 93% hold, and both cleared a million bucks in revenue in Iowa. Well, no typo, it turns out. 
both books simply took million dollar bets last month from Mattress Mac on the Houston Astros to win the World Series. And for now, those bets count as revenue for the books, even though they would each be paying out $5 million a few months from now if Mac wins his bets, which, as we've discussed many times before, are just insurance policies against mattress promotions at his stores. Those two bets raise the total hold in Iowa for the month from 8.9% to 10.3% and created a misleading picture about how well the books did this month. My question for you, John, is yes, those bets should count toward handle, but should they count toward revenue? And any surprise that Mac was able to get his million-dollar bets down at relatively small books like Unibet and Betfred? Well, first off, nothing Mattress Mac does surprises me. And small books are like the Mac Man. They create publicity and, hey, look, they just got some more from us. How about that? Um, wouldn't be surprised if he got marginally better odds, too. And by the way, as the Yankees' free fall continues, they lose every series they play against good teams, if anyone has noticed. Uh, the Max bets look great for him, and mattress and furniture buyers in the Houston area may be on their way to a refund. So uh, we'll come back in the first week of November or so and, and notice. But as far as whether it should be counted or not, I mean, I think the window of people who care at all about the hold total in Iowa and but don't know about the Mac, mattress Mac exception here uh, is very, very small. So I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, that, that's a fair uh, observation. I mean, you can probably guess from the way that I set it up and asked the question that I feel unsettled bets shouldn't count toward hold, although mm -hmm. I recognize that it's much easier for tabulation purposes if you just take, here's the money people bet, here's the money we paid, find the difference. Mm -hmm. So I, I get why they do it that way. I, I guess it all comes out in the wash at the end of the year, but mm -hmm. on a monthly basis, it can really skew the picture as it did in Iowa in July and as it may do again in Iowa in November. And on that front, you know, the price to pay in November if the Astros win yeah, I have to assume this is potentially a little bit scary for those books, not yeah. put them out of business scary or anything as mm. you know, they're each in several states, they can balance out a bad loss in Iowa with winning months elsewhere. But still, this isn't DraftKings or FanDuel or BetMGM where you don't even notice a $5 million loss on a bet. I would think Unibet or Betfred notices. But you know, the, the bookmaker's job is to take a bet if they believe it's plus EV for the sports books. Uh, I guess they felt their plus 500 line on the Astros at the time was in their favor. So you take the bet because you're a sports book. That's what you do. If you're afraid to take a bet that favors you in the long run, you aren't running your business the right way. It's kind of funny, though. Here we have a situation where the sports book might be sweating the bet more than the better. You know, <laughs> yeah, whether so. whether or not the Astros win the World Series is of little consequence to Mattress Mac financially, but it's of at least some consequence to these two minor sports books. Yeah, I wonder if there are a few Iowans out there. Uh, is that heaven? I think it is. Uh, <laughs> as we go. have the Field of Dreams game going on Thursday night. Uh -huh. um, that that maybe they offer slightly better odds on one side to everybody else to try and uh, sort of uh, massage the numbers a little bit to cut down on the total risk. That would be interesting if somebody gets a break that way. Yeah, or maybe if you're running Unibet or Betfred, you take a trip to Texas and buy some mattresses now and, uh, and uh, sort of hedge, hedge, like, uh, hedge the other way. Yeah. Free shipping, I heard. If you bend a certain amount, you get free okay, shipping. Okay, there you go. <laughs> All right, moving from one pseudo-celebrity to another. Uh, Jake Paul announced this week that he's getting into sports betting with a company called Better, B-E-T-R. Yeah. I have no idea whether you, John, are familiar with Jake <laughs> Paul or whether the majority of our listeners are. His name recently came up in my house and my wife said she'd never heard of him. I mostly only know of him because he started dabbling in professional boxing a couple of years ago and has become, on the strength of his following, a big deal in the sport from a ticket selling perspective. But before that, he was a popular YouTuber who got started by riding the waves of his YouTube famous older brother. What matters now is that Jake Paul has 20 million Instagram followers, and when he has something to sell, there's an audience for it. So now he's partnering with Joey Levy, a co-founder of SimpleBet, on an app focused on taking a form of in-game betting, micro-betting as Paul calls it, to a new level. And Better isn't just going to be a sports book, it's also a media company, not the first in the space to go down that road, but Paul's social media following will instantly put eyeballs on their content. John, Jake Paul says he's going to, quote, disrupt legacy gambling and legacy media. Can he? Should DraftKings and FanDuel and the like be worried about Better? 
Mm, I think more importantly, have we booked them on next week's show yet? Because uh, <laughs> not yet. Because if so, maybe we should edit out this part where I say that I've never heard of him <laughs> until he did or was supposed to be in a boxing match against some pseudo celebrity. And a lot of responders on Twitter, well, they were rooting for the other fighters' boxing gloves to have a great night. I'll put it that way. Right. Um, so I'm guessing he's a singer, maybe. I don't know. But um, 20 million followers on Instagram, never been on there, but that sounds like a lot kind of an interesting concept and i don't know how to tell if there's real potential here uh you have any idea there? uh I, I, the short answer is no no i don't have any idea um <laughs> but i guess if there's a point of comparison uh it's you know to look at barstool sportsbook i, I think there's mm. some similarities there you know big social media brands a lot of overlap in the fan base between people who like jake paul and people who like barstool they're not likely to spend on traditional advertising, uh, you know, focusing on the sports betting media side as well, just like Barstool uh, does to some extent. But, you know, better is coming to it a couple of years after Barstool. So I would say better is an underdog to end up higher on the sports betting food chain than Barstool. But I can't rule out their chances of doing really well just because Jake Paul does have this large and attentive audience, which... I don't think the fact that he has a large and attentive audience says great things about the state of American youth, but I suppose my parents were thinking the same thing 30 years ago about me listening to Axl Rose or, or whatever. I guess that's just me being an old man and complaining that I don't get Jake Paul. So yeah, really hard to say whether he's going to actually disrupt anything. I mean, there is one additional piece of news on this that just came out Thursday morning that the pro football hall of fame in Canton announced some sort of partnership with better as we've discussed, the Pro Football Hall of Fame applied <laughs> for an Ohio betting license, um, and they actually already have a, a partnership with Rush Street. So I'm not sure who's doing what in terms of the partnerships, but Jake Paul is from Ohio. That might be a factor here. I don't know that that qualifies as disrupting the industry, but I guess it shows that Better is already making some minor inroads. Yeah, the USFL also hosted their semifinal and final games uh, at in Canton, Ohio, for mm -hmm. some godforsaken reason. After playing the entire regular season in Birmingham, Alabama, so I don't know what the Hall of Fame is doing exactly, but um, yeah, I mean, it. It. I think to me, Barstool, I understood better. I was more familiar with it. I know that. While it's sort of a, you know, bro, you know, culture, but sports was very much front and center. And the Jake Paul thing, I'm not sure that that's exactly what they're going to. Not that a lot of them probably don't like sports, too, but I don't see the tie in as strong uh, or that they're probably as large as Barstool was. So I knew Barstool was going to have a good chance. I'm not sure about this one at all. Right. And and just to refresh your memory, uh, we we had a bankroll bet on Jake Paul's oh. theoretical upcoming opponent, uh, Hasim Rahman Jr., who was going to be the first actual pro boxer he'd faced. Previous opponents included ex-basketball player Nate Robinson, some MMA fighters. He hadn't faced a boxer yet, and he was scheduled to, so I had put some of our bankroll money on, on said <laughs> boxer, but then the fight got canceled because the guy couldn't make weight, so that actually would have been... What's today? It would have been, was it last weekend or this coming weekend? Now I can't keep it. I think it was last weekend that fight was supposed to happen and got scrapped. Um, so that bet ended up voided, but we were betting against Jake Paul. So we have a lot of stuff to scrub from this episode after the fact, if we're able to line up <laughs> yeah, Jake Paul's right, interview. Exactly. All right. Our final story this week is about a betting operator of sorts operating outside the standard state-by-state -state regulated space, an operator that apparently won't be operating at all in the U.S. much longer. Predicted, an options market style betting site for political outcomes, has been legally operating in America since 2014 under a no action letter from the Commodity Futures Trading Division. But last week, the CFTC withdrew that no action letter, meaning Predicted has to shut down by February 15th, 2023. In the meantime, Predicted will continue to allow the buying and selling of shares, but won't introduce new markets and has to figure out what to do with markets that won't be settled by February 2023, such as who will win the 2024 presidential election. We should note there was an $850 limit on all wagers at Predicted, but still, it did offer a way to bet legally in the U.S. on elections. There's still an option to do so using the Iowa electronic markets, but the general take is that there are fewer offerings there and that predict it does it all better. Otherwise, to bet on U.S. elections, gamblers will have to go to Canada, Europe, or use unregulated offshore sites. 
from a journalistic perspective, I'll miss having predict its numbers to build stories around. But from a gambling perspective, I was never putting a penny into that sort of thing anyway. Uh, John, your take on predict it going away. And what's the soonest you think we could possibly see a U.S. state try to regulate betting on U.S. elections at traditional sports books? Could it happen this decade? Well, first of all, I think it's for the best that this is going away. I mean, look, I know that my cousins in Ireland, uh, people in the UK and many other places around the world, they not only bet on elections, they bet on our election. And they've been doing so for more than a decade, certainly. But it's just not part of American culture for whatever reason. And for once, I'd be surprised if there's much of a partisan split on this. I mean, Americans don't like the idea of people legally risking money on the result of an election for whatever reason. So, I mean, my home state of New Jersey seemingly would once again be the pioneer like everything else, but I have never gotten any vibe from anyone involved in the gambling expansion efforts in this state in the dozen years I've been on this wild ride that that was a goal. Oh yeah. And by the way, someday we'll have that too. Like ever. I've never heard that. Uh, Nevada maybe, but they're kind of set in their ways at this point, aren't they? So I don't know if they're going to be so maverick on this either. So, you know, this decade is a good over under that you mentioned. I think, you know, seven or eight years is an eternity these days, but I don't think we wake up on January 1st, 2030, and some state sports books have just set early legal lines on those election races coming up to that November. I don't, I don't see it. Okay. So you're saying over, over on 2030. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I probably lean the same way, but I don't know. Things just evolve, seem to evolve more quickly uh, these days than, than mm. in the past. I wouldn't be shocked, I guess, if the under hits there. What I haven't seen anywhere is a clear explanation of what changed in, in the CFTC's attitude toward predict it. Hmm. Going to go conspiracy brain here just a little bit and, and wonder whether other forms of legal election betting are in the works and that this is all political, no pun intended, just, you know, political maneuvering to clear the way for sports books to offer this stuff down the road. I, I'm not sure I buy that. I'm just throwing the conspiracy theory out there. There must be some reason that this was all okay until last week. And it can't just be that Jeff Edelstein and Eric Raskin are writing about it and have drawn attention to predict it. I don't think that's what tipped the scales. I am really interested to see what they're going to do with these unsettled markets. Um, it's not like a standard sports book where say you bet on the Chiefs to win the next Super Bowl and we're going out of business before that bet settles. So we just void and refund the bet. These markets, you know, people own shares, they've bought, they've sold. It's a lot more complicated. I have zero clue what predict it can or should do about that other than to maybe cash everyone out at the current value. I'm, I'm not sure. But anyway, I've said this before and I'll, I'll say it again that I have too much actual life quality sweat riding on some of these elections <laughs> to consider putting money behind it also. Maybe my attitude will change someday, but for now, there's just no way I would bet on an election, at least not one that I care about. Maybe you could get me to put 10 bucks on some state house seat in California or something like that. But uh, to me, to me, I don't need to increase the stakes and the sweat on, uh, on U.S. elections. Well, yeah, I don't get it either, but I am also not really the type to decide that, well, I don't like it. So therefore, nobody else should get to do it. Right, That's uh, right. incredibly if there's one bipartisan agreement in this country, it's that, yeah, whatever uh, we like should happen, whatever the other guys like that we don't like. It shouldn't be even be legal. I don't care if this is legal. I mean, I'm not going to lose any sweat over it, but um, a lot of people will. And that's why it's not going to happen anytime soon. I, as long again, as long as I think much like Emmys and Oscars markets, if you're going to legalize this, uh, you got to have some some caps on it, some limits limits on it so that people don't feel mm -hmm. like the election integrity is threatened by the size of the bets. I think I think this would be an important thing to if you're going to legalize it eventually keep the limits low, even though, of course, again, you know, people could then still be wagering bigger money offshore, et cetera, and you can yeah. never be 100% certain. But I would certainly say that if if and when election betting gets legalized in the US, I would expect there to be some modest caps on how much you can bet. Uh, that's reasonable. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Horse betting in the U.S. is hitting an inflection point as the traditional paramutual method of wagering is getting some company or some competition in the form of fixed odds wagering. 
The first regulated fixed odds horse bets were taken at Monmouth Park in New Jersey in late July. And joining us now on the podcast is Dallas Baker, the head of international operations for BetMakers, an Australia-based company leading the charge on fixed odds systems and generally trying to grow interest in the sport. Dallas, welcome to Gamble On. Eric, John, thank you very much for having me. So I'll start you with the basic questions. Um, what is the upside for bettors and for race books to offering fixed odds betting? And what is BetMakers' role in this movement that's just now arriving in the States? Well, I'll start from the um, start from the, the the gamblers or the punters' point of view. Obviously, the uh, the the first point is it's a it's a choice for them. There's now an option to whether in New Jersey and hopefully as we roll it out uh, into more states across the US, there's now a choice for the consumer. Uh, and you know, fixed odds betting uh, into the market the market that we're really looking to target, which we'll get to eventually in this chat, the sports betting marketplace. Um, by having having something that bookmakers can promote, it opens that up to their customers to be able to enjoy the great sport of horse racing in a more modern, understandable way. Um, where it, there's the advantage of, I think, uh, the fixed odds fixed odds betting, uh, which is you know the same as sports betting, uh, the same sort of concept, is a lot easier to explain than, than the paramutual system. Um, and I think it's fair enough to say in racing, not just in the US, but uh, globally, and this is something we experienced in Australia when, when fixed odds, the fixed odds marketplace was deregulated, was there was the lost generation of racing fans. Uh, racing was the biggest ticket item in, 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 in around 50 years ago um, and had this discussion a lot just coming back from the Saratoga sales is where, where did it all happen? Uh, or where did that change happen? And I, I think it just goes back to the only promoting that you had to do for horse racing was to open the gates and people turned up. There was no competition. Now, if you have a look at the what, um, you know, you do a business analysis of horse racing and say what the competitors of horse racing are, it's everything that can distract from somebody on using the Saturday as that typical example. So I think we lost that generation of people and that generation of people don't really know how to access racing. So where this is where this is advantageous to somebody who, who I think is going to end up enjoying racing is first and foremost is that they're going to see it on the sports betting apps. So it's going to come up as an option. Now we, as people who follow racing, know how to find an ADW, know how to go to the track and have a bet. But if you're somebody, one of the thirty odd million people who's opened a sports betting account, you, you know, unless you have been a racing person, you really don't know how to find racing. And if it's not in your sports betting app, it's not in your sports betting app. So it's not an option for you. So I think that's where the great advantage is that it opens up the market to a whole new, new group of people. Now, where it becomes an even better advantage is that generally, when I say generally, 70% of the time or thereabouts is the fixed odds price is going to be better than the tote price. Now that's at the closing, closing point of, um, of betting. So, Naturally, the fixed odds market, like the sports betting market, fluctuates around. It's a liquid market. So the price at the closing time of the, the betting is, you know, is only going to be the best price 30 or 40% of the time. So, you know, even just using that metric of comparing the closing, the closing price for fixed odds versus the closing price of the tote, that's 70% of the time better. Now, then if you wanted to be a little bit more generous to fixed odds and say, what was the best price throughout betting, then you're probably going to get to 80 or 90%. So, you know, like it's, it really does, it really does provide the, uh, the person who wants to have a bet on horse racing with a, with an option that they're going to get higher returns from. So, you know, you get, if you start seeing, you know, people who have, and, and sometimes significantly as well too, we've seen at Monmouth, you know, horses that are, going off even money on the total being a two to one fixed odds. So, I mean, you're talking about doubling the money of people's investment. So that's, you know, that, that really is the bottom line and the crux of it is that you're putting more money back into the pockets of the, of the people who are gambling on horse racing. So that's the, uh, probably the number one thing. I think number two, it's, as I said, it's easier to understand and easier for the modern player to understand the fixed odds market. And then when you start talking about the racing industry, that, that goes hand in hand by actually having a something that probably services the customers better, uh, allowing, allowing those customers to enter the industry 
And the critical thing to what we've done in Jersey and what we're fighting for for all in all the other states is to make sure the model is based on a racing first uh, racing first philosophy, so that every bet that is struck, the racing the, the racing industry gets a nice clip of the ticket out of, and that then goes to funding the industry. And um, we've seen it in Australia. The model, the same model that we're bringing in here, or a similar model with improvements, I'd like to think, is basically doubled prize money, doubled returns on just about every metric in the in the racing industry in a 10-year period. And, um, you know, and we've seen betting handle go through the roof. Betting handle's gone from $10 billion to now it's, you know, by the end of this year, it's probably going to, be, it's probably going to get club very close to $40 billion. So, And that's all come on the back of fixed odds betting. The tote, stayed, tote and tote derivative products have stayed pretty much stable and all of that money has come from fixed odds. So that has provided a whole chunk of money that was never there before that can then be reinvested in the industry. And that reinvestment, it's, it's, it's more than a dollars and cents thing because it becomes self-fulfilling. You know, obviously, with an economic, with looking at the economic theories of things, you put more money back into the racing, more money goes into prize money. It just then makes sense that more people will buy horses, more people are going to want to race horses. The more horses that race, the better the field sizes, the better, the better, more attractive it is for people to bet in. So all of those things become a become a self fulfilling effect to it, um, which then helps every step of the way. But that comes back to the core model of being able to provide. The marketplace with a product to promote and that's where the racing industry will get a great deal of benefit from it from basically the sports bookmakers becoming the greatest promoters of the horse racing industry yeah Dallas, i want to ask you about uh for various logistical reasons this has been kind of a baby steps process i mean you go back to may and you can only bet uh fixed odds on Monmouth Park races, and you have to be at Monmouth Park. And then a couple of weeks ago, okay, now, as long as you're in New Jersey, you can do fixed odds, but only on races still at Monmouth Park. So, you know, by the end of the year, I'm curious, you know, which might come first, either New Jersey residents or visitors can bet on more than just Monmouth Park races, or residents of other states can do fixed odds too. Yeah, well, um, the, to uh, answer the more content, uh, we've got, we've got, about 12, 14 tracks from around US and Canada and a zillion tracks from all around the world that will be coming in for a 24-7, 24/7 content. As you said, John, um, it has been baby steps. Uh, one thing that we said the whole way through the process is, you know, we're hopeful of hopeful of well, we're hopeful of launching the app on uh, or the website, I should say, on Monmouth Day. Just missed that by, you know, a few hours or thereabouts. But um, we've been made very meaning, very particular in getting it right. Um, we've done platforms there's the company bet makers we've done platforms ad nauseum for everywhere around the world but this is being the first fixed odds product in the us it's obviously the first fixed odds product that we've done as well too and there are there are quite a few nuances to it um it's it's quite easy just to be managing one race meet one one venue at a time when you've got to hold it together a little bit more manually but then as you start bringing in more content that's where you really want the automation to be running itself and just a lot of a lot of the nuances that need to be coded properly and worked out properly and things that have popped up throughout the process that you know we might have underestimated how um, how much work needed to go into them we knew that that work needed to be done but you know things that we might have thought take one week take three weeks so that's why it's been a little bit the the process as you said has been a step-by-step process um, hopefully the uh, the final steps of the next stage of it are finished, and then as soon as as soon as they are, we'll be flicking on the um, flicking on the um, the uh, the out of state content, and probably at the same time the international content will come with it, and then and then the rollout continues across the US. As I think you probably know, Colorado is already approved to. Yeah. It's just coming down to commercials between the stakeholders in Colorado to have that up and running, and other states are, are following suit. And we have always, always forecast that it's going to probably roll. It'll roll out very similar to how sports betting rolled out, whereas it'll be a state-by-state process. Colorado were lucky that they were able to do it regulatorily, uh, which obviously means that you don't have to go through a legislation process, which is fine having to go through it. But going through the regular, just making a, regular, a regulatory process is a lot quicker than legislation. And, you know, one of the things with legislation is that most of the states that are probably going to be in the next wave. They don't. They don't uh, have their um, their lawmaking sessions until the start of next year. So I mean that in itself just holds thing up things up. But also there's you know lots of discussions going on with lots of different states about you know having it um, having the ball ready to roll for when that um, 
for when that uh, pro- those processes start next year. Well, it sounds like almost like, you know, this is like a horse race. Which state gets second across the finish line? <laughs> it's not quite clear. And then which track is the second one to be added to even to the New Jersey product? You're not quite sure yet exactly who that's going to be because there's a lot of contenders. Yeah, well, we've got basically with with the twelve or fourteen, the fourteen odd tracks that we've got signed up, it'll yeah, they'll they'll all come on at the same time. So it'll be basically just the ones that are ones that are racing at the moment. Tampa Bay is probably our next biggest track. Um, they're more of a winter track, and they'll come on and fill it, and you know provide really good content for over that uh, that period. Um, but the the rest of the others are all pretty much up and running now. So it'll just uh, it'll come down to uh, who who runs second is when uh, whatever day we flick the switch and whoever's racing on that day. Well, if, if I decide to bet on who's coming next, I want to make sure I'm locking in my odds and not, uh, that I don't have to worry about the odds changing on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. You can get fixed odds on that. Good. So um, I'm curious about the age demographics uh, of this. Mm. What, what's the breakdown as far as your research shows on a preference for fixed odds? Like, in other words, is this specifically something that caters more toward younger bettors, maybe those who came to sports betting before horse betting, or is it popular with the veteran horse betting set as well? Well, we, we've had a really good response right across the board, but I mean, it is, the target market is those sports, the, the people on the sports books and people can often say, oh, racing is aging out and all of that. And yes, it has. And I think it goes back to that opening comment, but um, you know, some of the, you know, you look at, you look at the growth of racing in Australia and it has come from that demographic because that was the forgotten demographic. And it's, you know, you, again, looking at the Australian model, which is very similar to what uh, the Australian model 12 years ago or thereabouts to what it is now in the US every year, essentially, you know, I know there's been a couple of little bumps in the last year in, in betting handle in the US, but every year, essentially, it goes down and it goes down. And the reality of it is, it's because the crowd's dying out. Um, you know, it, it really was the case. Of, that's the reality of it. Um, and I, you know, I know people might say that might be ageist or something like that, but it's what's happening. So, um, but you, you, but then you bring it back to say, yeah, okay, I think it does appeal to the the uh, the older generation because the older generation understands their betting and they they actually understand that they're going to start getting a better return. They're harder to come across because it's different and it's confusing because it's in decimal odds, it's not in fractional odds, and people are used to it, uh, used to the way that they do it. But for the yeah, it's definitely for the the um you know target the target market is that younger player who's been you know locked into the sports books and turning over phenomenal money in the US on sports books to do that. And you, you look at you look at the numbers around around the world. Obviously, greyhound racing isn't um isn't allowed in New Jersey, but both in the UK and Australia. And I'm probably not going to get the age brackets totally right, but just say that critical 25 to 35 year old bracket. And please don't shoot me down if I'm wrong, <laughs> but uh, Greyhound race, Greyhound racing is the fastest growth gambling sport in both Australia and the UK. You know, obviously it, it makes sense. You know, people can just watch it on the screens at their pub. There's eight dogs in every race. There's a race every few minutes that if you, you know, you just go around and it, you know, just becomes a cycle of it. And, you know, it's easy to, easy to watch and easy to manage. So, you know, like I think that's I think that shows that where the 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 so-called dying out sport is not really that. It's just um it just needs a little bit of innovation and a bit more bit more thought on how to um on how to make money out of the industry rather than the industry relying on racinos, casinos, HHR machines, all the other all the other peripheral things, which is great for the industry, which puts it back into it. But I think uh, in a lot of instances, people have forgotten how to market the sport and marketing the key product of the sport, which is wagering. And there's no reason why racing shouldn't be able to self-sustain itself on that. It's just been, you know, there's been probably things that have got more glitz and glamour to them and people have gravitated away from how to promote the core business of racing, which is hopefully something that we're bringing back to the US to say that this, you know, this can actually survive on its own rather than, you know, rather than requiring casinos, et cetera. And on a related note to the age demographic uh, breakdown, is is there a similar preference um, uh, with regard to the mobile versus retail breakdown that the the fixed odds and the and the younger betters that there's a preference more toward do it, being able to do this on mobile? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the online space is, is, is where it's going to be. I mean, what we're doing at Monmouth, the, the handle eventually, once all the sports, sports bookmakers go on, will be very, um, very minimal comparatively on track. The online space is where it's all about. I think 85% of the bets in Australia now are made on a mobile phone. 
Um, you know, I mean, and obviously the sports betting, the sports betting customer is using their mobile phone almost exclusively to have bets, you know, or mobile phone or computer or whatever. Um, so like, you know, there's not, you know, John, you, you two would probably know the numbers better than I would, but I would, you know, I'd be guessing what 90 plus percent of the bets come through on, um, on, um, on apps or whatever. So, you know, that's, that's exactly where it gets to, but back to, back to also the demographic as well too. Um, what we've seen at Monmouth in that very limited sample, um, you know, so, you, you know, it's very, you know, you, you, you know, you use a small sample like that, you can often end up with egg on your face. But the pleasing thing is, is seeing the younger people who are probably there uh, for more of a social day. Now they're really getting around fixed odds. And some of the, some of the better, the, 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 the younger people there that are there every week, you probably only saw them come once every four weeks, but now they're there every week and they might only be having a couple of bucks on every race, but they're there every race, looking at the screens, comparing it with the, uh, you know, comparing it with the tote price and the fixed odds price and the tote odds price is better. They'll try and take that. So watching it in real time, we're actually being able to see that demographic be re-engaged with it and having an exciting time and really enjoyable time. And what is also great to add to that is, you know, yeah, one of the most often heard things on the track was I backed a horse at five to one and it went off at five to two or whatever, you know, those prices. Now you've got people coming back and going, oh, how good is this? I backed the horse at five to one and it's gone off at five to two, but I've got five to one, right. you know, and like, you know, people are happy and, uh, it, you know, rather than going around kicking stones after backing a winner, um, they're now they're high-fiving each other, like saying, how good did we do? Because we've got this that's worth twice as much or even if it's worth a tick more they're feeling like they're getting a better experience so and that that really seems to be um uh, we've got a much higher percentage of younger people betting fixed odds than would be generally betting uh, around the around the track at Monmouth. Yeah, you know, Dallas, it's no secret that a lot of traditional horsemen around the country and previously around the world before this came to the UK and Ireland and Australia, you know, are thinking, wait a minute, we got the paramutual system. This is going to cannibalize. We're going to lose. You know, some of it is maybe paranoia. Some of it is reasonable concern. You're you're making a living and now you're wondering what's going to happen. So I think, you know, we we understand that. But in New Jersey, the approach was, well, it's only going to be win, place and show at least to start. So I had not realized that two thirds of the wagering in New Jersey is on exotics like uh, uh uh, you know, what you might call parlays and sports betting, but exact as trifecta as pick six. As a, that's where so much money gets spent because obviously the odds are much longer and you can win bigger. And so, you know, what you're saying to somebody is, uh, listen, you had 100 percent concern. I just took two thirds of it out the window. So now your that's- risk is much lower than you originally thought it was. And then also, I think you gave some sort of a. Um, uh, a guarantee to the New Jersey thoroughbred horsemen so that, uh, now I don't know, did that, did that mean that would minimize any possible losses or did that minimize losses hundred percent? Yep. Yeah. We've, um, we've put up um, and, and willing to do this in every state as we've spoken to every state one, because we feel um, a million percent confident in the, in the concept. Uh, another case in point, uh, I know that uh, Bill Pascal the third always makes is that uh, exhibit A is that we bought Sportec, the tote company, which is now Global Tote. So we we actually don't see the fixed odds cannibalising it. We f- see fixed odds bringing a whole heap heap of new people into the game, and those people, if they're having a win place and show bet, are also that they're the most likely people to have an exact or a trifecta or whatever. Um, so we see by bringing a whole new crowd in that you're actually going to, the tote is actually going to grow and grow significantly. So, but, and we go back to the cannibalisation issue. You look at Australia, bets that have been placed on tote or tote derivative products have basically pretty much stayed the same. So the argument is that with inflation, they've gone down, but the money, the, the money's been held there. But I don't think that the Australian model captured that perfectly. How it works in Australia, bookmakers offer tote prices as well, but that money doesn't hit the pool. So to, if the, once the money goes into the pool and then uh, the, that becomes a great generator of money itself because the computer players will come in and bet to a percentage of the pool and if there's more money in the pool, they're going to be betting at a higher percentage. So not only should that money be hitting the pool, but that money when it hits the pool also then generates more, more, ter- more circular flow of money as well too. And that was something that the Australian model didn't get right and that's something that we're definitely going to make sure if we've, um, you know, for where we, where we do have the say in it, make sure that, that that's in existence in the US. So we can see that that actually the tote growing. Um, playing devil's advocate too, just say, just say that we're wrong and the tote is cannibalised. Um, and, you know, 
but the fixed by having fixed odds in place, it's grown the wagering space three, four, five times, and therefore that there's that more extra money for to be generated from the industry. The industry shouldn't really be concerned of whether the whether a tote company's business has been cannibalised. They should be concerned about what's coming back to the industry and whether that's coming from fixed odds betting, from tote betting, from exchange betting, or any other form of whatever then the bottom line is what should be the important to the industry. So whether, whether it, we're, we're a million percent for, uh, uh, behind the fact that we think we can grow the tote given the right opportunities and the right models. But, you know, in saying that, if, if the whole wagering piece on horse racing is increased multitudes and that then increases the returns to the industry multitudes, well, who cares where it comes from, really? Mm-hmm. All right. Tremendous insights. Uh, really great talking to you, Dallas. We appreciate you uh, carving out a little time for us. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us on Gamble On this week. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And thanks for all, uh, all the articles that have been done. It's always good fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dallas. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And John remains red hot on off-brand football. I remain ice cold on ill-advised bets on preseason games. John had an excellent week overall, and I had the exact opposite. Uh, Let's get my bad news out of the way first. Much like when I tried to go under in an NBA Summer League game a few weeks ago, my under in the NFL Hall of Fame game failed. I could complain about how we were under by a half point with under four minutes to play and two defensive penalties on the Raiders allowed the Jags to score a garbage time touchdown to beat us. But it's preseason. They're all garbage time touchdowns. This is what I signed up for, so I can't really complain. So I cost us $110 there, and I snapped my modest streak of winning baseball weeks No homer for Schwarber, no homer for Drury. Padres lost outright to bust up my Moneyline parlay. I did keep those bets small, but there were three of them. So together, the three wagers added up to $118 lost. Now for the good news. Uh, You split your golf top 20 bets, but they were both at plus money. So a split is a win. We lost $50 on Adam Scott, but we won $70 on, is it Tyrrell Hatton? Am I pronouncing it correctly? That's correct. Very good. Okay. Um, But the big hit, was your CFL Stampeders. I didn't (laughs) jinx you by betting it in real life. You're welcome. Uh, They easily covered the five points and you went for a big $165 bet to win 150. So you had a great plus $170 week. I had a pitiful minus $228 week. If I want to feel better about my contributions, I can note that my MLB futures are looking better than yours at the moment, but uh-huh. that's small consolation. We'd always rather have the money in the bank that you earned than the future theoretical money that I may earn. Anyway, we lost $58 on the week. We're now at minus $29.34 overall, and we still have $1,060 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $6,006 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Yeah, so we begin the three-week FedEx Cup playoff season this week on the PGA Tour. And thanks to a court ruling, we have no live tour golfers, the Saudi group. Uh, although the potential for cat fights might have goosed the TV ratings if they were allowed. So mm. a little unfortunate, maybe. But uh, we're in familiar territory, meaning, of course, in Memphis, that's been a tour staple for many years. So let's see. Uh, we'll knock off the usual Thursday AM tea time players mm-hmm. and go with BetMGM again. And there are no chop pots for top 10, top 20, et cetera, as usual, too. So uh, give me Will Zalatoris, gamble on favorite from three years ago, even yep. uh, 50 units and even money for top 20 out of a mere 125 player field. And 30 something American Billy Horschel for 50 also at plus 150 for top 20. And I'm a bit surprised that peaking Xander Shoffley is a lowly plus 1800 to win. So let's waste 10 units on that too. All right. Um, So we had a brief Slack conversation this week about uh, when one of us loses X amount amount of dollars in X amount of time, maybe he should take a week off from betting. Uh, (laughs) Now for what it's worth, I had winning weeks, two of the previous four weeks. So now, and now I'm at, I'm at two and three in the last five, not good, but nothing to freak out about, but I definitely stunk last week and I haven't gone on a consistent hot streak in a while. Anyway, my stance is this is a podcast. We need content. No sense taking a week off from betting, but what I've long done in real life with my online poker bankroll 
is to follow strict bankroll management rules Mm -hmm. where you can only buy in for certain percentages of your bankroll in any game. So as your bankroll grows, you can play bigger. And as it shrinks, you have to play smaller. So I will definitely do that with my bets until my confidence is stronger and until our bankroll is stronger. Kind of been doing it a little anyway, some $55 bets here and there instead of $110 bets lately. Anyway, that was a long preamble to my first bets this week. I'm still a big believer in the value of NFL season-long player prop unders. Hmm. I see a couple I like, uh, but I'll bet them at half price compared to my usual. Now, as you know, with season-long bets, my usual is bigger than my usual weekly bets. I I normally like to go 200 or 250 on a season-long because it's spread out over four or five months. But I'll go half that on these. Um, We already have one placed a while back, I'll remind you, $195 bet on Antonio Gibson's rushing yards under Let's do two unders for quarterbacks. Uh, Again, believing these are fair lines if the player stays healthy and plays 16 or 17 games, but the possibility of missing games favors the under. Baker Mayfield, I shopped around. His line is as high as 3,700.5 passing yards. And we don't even know for sure that he'll be Carolina's starting quarterback. Yeah. Uh, at, at the very least, they like Sam Darnold enough that he can sub in if Baker is having a bad game or a healthy Darnold would probably get the start over a nicked up Mayfield. And if Carolina's out of the playoff hunt with a few weeks to go, maybe they fully hand the reins to Darnold. Point being, there are a lot of ways Mayfield doesn't play 16 or 17 games. So let's bet 110 to win 100 under 37.5 yards. Then Kyler Murray rushing yards. I found it as high as 530 and a half between injury potential and some degree of personality clashing with Kyler and the Cardinals. You know, he's become one of those whiny complainer types. Plus, with each passing year, these running quarterbacks get it more ingrained in them that they should only run as a last resort. So I like the under there. It's minus 115. So $115 to win 100. And then one additional quick little bet that isn't an under. Um, CeeDee Lamb is a nice plus 2,000 long shot to lead the league in receiving touchdowns. He no longer has Amari Cooper to compete with. He's the clear number one in Dallas, should see his numbers spike. And if Dak stays healthy, he's always among the touchdown passing leaders. I think there's value here on Lamb at 20 to 1 to have a breakout season and lead the league in touchdown catches. So let's bet $20 to win 400. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I monopolized more than my share of time there with those three bets. Uh, went, went a little <laughs> long this week. Yeah. Uh, yes, listeners, I will go back to the CFL well after a third okay. straight two score victory versus the point spread and really having the utterly dominant team all three weeks. So give me the six and one British Columbia Lions at 165 to win 150 over the five and two Calgary Stampeders who were last week's darlings for us. And we give just two points. Now the Stampeders typically have tamed the Lions in recent years. And I think that bought us a low spread here. Our felines, meanwhile, are much healthier in this matchup. And I expect that double digit victory over the Peters, as I call them. Now that I feel like I'm a CFL expert. (laughs) So I have, I have two comments, well, actually two sort of questions, uh, mm. kind of one, one related directly to this bet. Mm. Um, are you, are you gathering some of your CFL sharpness from reading uh, Greg Warren's articles every week that he's been writing for us bets? Is, is that a key uh, research point for you or, or just, uh, just uh, random happenstance? Uh, not until this week, actually, just yesterday, oh. I noticed that uh, he had done one. So I'd look at that and I, I actually like his preview. He's not a tout, but um right. As much depth of uh, information, also historical, you know, uh, things of, you know, last six weeks, the Stampeders have been over on the over five times out of six or under five out of six, whatever it was, you know, but definitely I liked it because some of the previews are kind of rambling or not really relevant. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend his his uh, his uh, news even right. though he's not really trying to tell you exactly how to bet. Yeah, exactly. That's Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were getting some of the information yeah. from there. Okay, and then, and then the other uh, comment question uh, is just, uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised that you didn't bet on the Field of Dreams game, uh, or, or are you protesting the stupidity of not having the White Sox in it? Uh, well, it... Um... <laughs> Last because I know you game, loved it last year. I did, and right. last year's game made eight home runs. And I was seeing yesterday on MLB Network, they said that the 
the cornfield itself actually generates enough heat that it makes the ball go out of the park. But I don't do I believe that? I don't <laughs> so I, I just uh, I, I was tempted for an over under, but um, I don't know. It's too weird. And yeah, the Reds and Cubs. I mean, even feel the dreams. I I can't get excited about that. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So I still have my second bet to get to. I'll be much quicker with this one than with my first. Um, boxing, ESPN, Saturday. Former lightweight champ Teofimo Lopez returns with a gimme against Pedro Campa, who has a very pretty record, 34 wins, one loss, one draw, but he has fought nobody. He's a club fighter, and his style is made to order for Lopez. He's there to make Lopez look good and to get knocked out. I was liking the under five and a half rounds, but you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, former champ and ESPN analyst Tim Bradley wrote a preview that went up Thursday morning. I took a look at it. He said all the same things that Campa is made to order, and he predicted that Lopez ends the fight within the first five rounds. So if my analysis is wrong here, that means Tim Bradley's analysis is too. Uh, the <laughs> under is minus 130. I have to pay a little extra for it, but I'm okay with that. Again, reducing my bet size a little till I'm back on track. $65 to win 50 under five and a half rounds. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Dallas Baker. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, you mentioned micro betting earlier and subscribers will know that few things are more micro than the typical John Brennan size of my occasional real life bet. <laughs> That's micro. Uh, but now, well, I have like a four figure. I mean, no decimals there. Ooh. We're about a thousand dollars on a line in a good way. Um, some of you older folks may know that Bruce Springsteen is returning to the road in February 2023. He's going to play 31 U.S. states before heading out to Europe for the summer two weeks later. Now, the final scheduled show in the U.S., which absolutely might be the final appearance ever on this soil of Bruce and the E Street Band, is slated to end at the Prudential Center in Newark on April 14th, 2023. And this lucky co-host has two tickets to that very show. Now, I got in on a pre-sale somehow, dumb luck, whatever, uh, a little overwhelmed. I haven't bought tickets on Ticketmaster in like 12 years. And I picked a random lower section and clicked and I got success. So two tickets for a total price of $120 each. And the resale market says I can sell my $240 worth of tickets for about, oh, $1,240 or so. Hence mm. the $1,000 conundrum. But as with betting odds, this is not a static market. There are all sorts of things that I could mention that Eric wouldn't allow me to, but that would seriously cut into that potential profit or possibly even erase it. And I would have to settle for a refund. One I can mention is what if Bruce adds a couple more shows after mine, meaning mine isn't the last one in the U.S. after all. That, of course, would cut into the value of this particular show and the tickets. Now, if I was older, I'd sort of give up and just step aside with the profit. But I have lost 20 pounds this year and expect to lose more. And this could be an extra incentive in that direction. I got to get in uh, game shape for this concert. And <laughs> I don't have any mortgage or any debt at all that would make it foolish to pass up the money. Like, uh, you know, this could go to a kid's college fund or something. So I, I don't know if that, that would pretty much eliminate me from consideration. So I'm not sure what to do with this gamble yet, but at least I have up to eight months to decide. With that conundrum, until next time, gamble on, everybody. <laughs>